From the lava pit of a long dormant volcano rise two unexpected heroes, Lumpy Bagpipes Jr. and Tipsy Sasquatch. Lumpy met Sasquatch one day, and likewise I'm sure, now they sit and talk about things that no one cares about, the Lumpy and Sasquatch show. Sasquatch and Lumpy, the Lumpy and Sasquatch Show. Welcome to the Lava Pit. Yay! Yay! So who died around this time of year, around this date? And maybe was born, we don't know. Hmm. Well, it's April-ish. Right? Um, The April Fool? That must be it. (laughs) If I recall correctly, it's around the time of Shakespeare's birthday. Which is undecided. And Death Day, which is decided. He's definitely dead. That's true. He was baptized in April of 1564, and he died April 23rd of 1616, so we know he was aged 52. 1616 was a bad year. It was a rough They always die in threes. Who were the other two that died around Shakespeare? Uh, Richard Burbage. Right? And Carl the Blacksmith. (laughs) Oh, Carl. (laughs) He was the most popular blacksmith around those times. Oh, yes. Very popular. So we're going to talk about Shakespeare this week. Because it's not all sci-fi movies and rock and roll music. We are also quite cultured in the lava pit. (laughs) Yes. uh, Ask our friends and loved ones. Yes. We are culture infinitum. Culture. Is that a word? (laughs) Personified. Yes. So Shakespeare, here's a little thing I bet you didn't know about Shakespeare. Okay. I can never spell his name. (laughs) I didn't know that. Every time I write Shakespeare, I'm like, is there an E at the end? There is, by the way, but I never remember that. And I have a degree in theater. I've directed Shakespeare. I've acted in Shakespeare. I've taken Shakespearean acting classes. So I'm pretty dumb. Do you think his friends called him Bill? Yeah, definitely. Really? Yeah. What about Billy? Mm, probably not. What about his mom? She probably called him late to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are your favorite Shakespeare plays, Sasquatch? That's a great question. I am very much into the tragedies. So, I like Hamlet and mm. Othello. I also really like some of the histories. Henry V, Richard Third. I'm not as much into those comedies. Comedies are dumb. Yeah. That's not serious stuff. (laughs) I also like what's called the problem plays, which are plays that don't fit into any specific category. They have elements of many uh, or several categories. Like The Nerd by Larry Shue. Sure, sure. The Nerd by Larry Shue. But we're talking about Shakespeare. Great play. I'm not making fun of it. It's a great play. I'm talking about plays like... Measure for Measure, or oh. The Tempest. Yes. Or even Twelfth Night, or what you will. Or Twelfth Angry Men. <laughs> you know, I asked you one time if you wanted us to get tickets to go see Beth at, at a place that was doing it. And you freaked out on me. You were like, I don't want to see that play. What have you got against Macbeth? I've got nothing against the play. I'm I'm sure at some point... First of all, I've been in the play. I played this version of Duncan the King who was kind of like a woodsman 
who was a little bit younger than you expect Duncan to be because he had to like wrestle and fight people to stay king. He's kind of like a wildling, if any of you out there are Game of Thrones fans. Never heard of it. So anyway, uh, I, I've been in it, but more importantly, I've seen probably more productions of Mackers, as we call it. than Nobody calls it that. <laughs> Than any other Shakespeare play. We call it that Scottish play, that Scottish in play. the theater. For it is bad luck. And, and I've uh, seen more bad productions of that play than any other play. And I'll give you two examples. Once when I was in high school, I went to see a production at a local university in Pittsburgh. Where, where Sasquatch was Raised. cultivated. And uh, Lady M was uh was full-on pole dancer she was a stripper and uh, pole dancer yeah. and uh basically she did all of her monologues while she was pole dancing mm. it made no sense and in college i won't get too specific about this but i saw a post-apocalyptic macbeth everybody and- has seen a post-apocalyptic something of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. I was in Romeo and Juliet. I don't think it was post-apocalyptic necessarily, but it was Third Planet from the left. I, I'll just say this. Most shows that are not written to be post-apocalyptic shows, but then are presented as post-apocalyptic plays, usually don't work. Yes. Have you seen the film Scotland, Pennsylvania? I have not. Okay. Well, you are you were raised in Pennsylvania and you are a fan of Shakespeare. It's Macbeth in like a diner in it's Pennsylvania. Cool. It was pretty good. I borrowed it from someone. Yeah. I would let you borrow it if I owned it, but I don't. I think Christopher Walken's in it. Does anybody out there have this Scotland, Pennsylvania thing? I know one of our listeners does because I borrowed it from them, oh, but okay. I don't want to say their name. Because they might be a guest one day. and Okay. Well, hey, send us a copy if anybody has one at Post Office Box. Right. The address is on the bottom of your screen. You know, here's another thing about Lumpy. I don't like Shakespeare. You don't like Shakespeare? <laughs> no. It's how, boring. How can you think that? I just don't like it. Some people don't like cats. I don't understand that. You know, but I don't like Shakespeare. And I'm allowed to say that. Lumpy is 50 human years old. <laughs> Almost. Lumpy has directed Shakespeare, acted in Shakespeare, can read Shakespeare and understand it, has taken classes, as I've said, all that stuff, read a lot of Shakespeare. I'm allowed to say that. I don't like it. Well, and I think, but importantly, you're allowed to say it because of all those things. Right. And I think part of the problem is that people aren't giving a lot of Shakespeare a chance, and it might not be their fault. It might be that they're having trouble understanding it, and that the productions are not doing a good enough job of making it accessible well, to them. I think that's the problem, because one of the best plays I've ever seen was a Shakespeare play, and I loved it. So clearly there are times when I can like Shakespeare but, you know, everybody does Shakespeare. We're in Chicago. Everybody's always doing Shakespeare. And sometimes they have interesting twists, or so they think. Sometimes they don't. But it's, since it's in the public domain, lots of people do it. A lot of those people shouldn't necessarily do it. So a bad production can ruin a playwright for you. Absolutely. Okay. But remember, this is a playwright who's been around for over 400 years. Is well, work... he hasn't been well, around. Not, not him. His, his is, ghost. Are we allowed to quote The Simpsons? Is this the end of zombie Shakespeare? <laughs> that was from a Halloween episode, Treehouse of Horrors episode. Hey, if you're the anybody involved with The Simpsons, hey, Hank Azaria, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah. Um, no. we, we know you love your job on The Simpsons. Look, he was really prolific. His, his work has stood the test of time. Uh, you know, he's called the Bard, the Bard of Avon. I mean, everybody thinks... What is a Bard? You know, like uh, like uh, uh, the purveyor 
of our essence on paper. What the? Are you are you thinking of a barbed wire fence? <laughs> they used to put up barbed wire fences back in the 1400s to keep Shakespeare out of their pastures. No, Bard's like a poet, right? He's like he's like the 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 great poet. Well, of then our... I'm a bard. Well, I'm... you are a bard, but you're not the bard. Well, neither is he anymore. It's like you could be like Henry the Fourth was a king, but he's not the king. That's Elvis. Right. Good right? point. So there you go. But my point is that he's been translated into every language, performed on every continent, maybe except Antarctica, I'm not sure. I think he actually has been. Has been on Antarctica. And there's been more productions of his plays than any other playwright in the history of the world. And that's impressive. I don't think we should uh, dismiss that. The work Nobody's dismissing anything. I'm just like, I'm just saying, I don't like him. Yeah, you don't like it. I find it boring, unless you're going to put Tom Waits songs in it. Well, that's Mm -hmm. a good idea. More people should do that. Yes, they should. That's what I do. Whenever I direct a play, there's always a Tom Waits song in it. Tom Waits, please don't sue me. <laughs> Tom Waits, if you're listening, call us. <laughs> That's the number on the bottom you of know, your screen. You know, the pre-show, and the theater has the rights to... <laughs> well, let, let me ask this, because, you know, we talked a little bit about how the accessibility is so important, and that a lot of these productions, the people, they don't know what they're saying... They speed through the lines. There's no sense of rhythm or cadence. And, you know, our ears have to adjust to that sort of thing. Just like when we hear a thick dialect or when we hear anything in poetry, our ears have to adjust. And if we're not providing the opportunity for our audiences to do that, then uh, what's the point, right? Because we're supposed to be out there doing these things for the sake of our audience so that they can understand and appreciate it the way that we do. But what, what's what's wrong? What's missing in translation? Why are so many productions of Shakespeare not successful? I will tell you, when I directed The Comedy of Errors, this is with a company who, who will remain nameless. They were community theater. They had done lots of Shakespeare. Sure. And I directed The Comedy of Errors, and the big compliments I got from the audience was... Oh, the people really knew what they were saying. Yeah. And they realized that they were on stage with other people. Those were like huge advancements. And it, you know, it takes a long time, especially in community theater where I directed this, to work on the text and realize you have to understand everything you're saying if people are going to believe you. And that show, that, that production turned out not too bad. You know, I was thinking about the other things that Shakespeare has given us. Kira Kurosawa? Well, sure, right? <laughs> Kurosawa, right? It has lots of great films. By the way, if you haven't seen, well, like, Ran or... Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood. Or The Bad Sleep Well. Right. Go check it out. And actually, I was complaining about Macbeth, but if you haven't seen Throne of Blood, go see it, and then you might love it. Right. Because Throne of Blood is brilliant, just like Akira Kurosawa. You know, hundreds of words were invented by Shakespeare. Turns of phrase that we use today. There are all kinds of things linked to his heritage. Over 20,000 pieces of music were influ- directly influenced or inspired by Shakespeare's work. That's pretty astounding. That's cultural... Not really. Uh, per- pervasion, we're... Pervasiveness. No. No? Well, it's only astounding. It's only that way because it's his stuff's been around for 400 years, 500 years. Yeah, but the Wait, Greeks, what year is it? The, the Greeks <laughs> had plays that have been around for thousands of years, and we still, like, tinker with well, them. Well, yeah, thousands of years. Who's Who cares about that stuff? <laughs> thousand years ago? I don't care. 500, 600 years ago? It's like, oh, yeah, well, we'll still do that. You know, one of the reasons I think that we remember him is because English theater in general became very popular at that time. And there were a whole string of uh, playwrights like Ben Johnson, 
like Marlowe, who came about at the same time, who made the medium very popular, and they began building all these theaters right outside the London city limits. And it was actually cutting into the profits being made by the bear-baiting rings and other such forms of entertainment. And they were getting tons of people out there. People were willing to pay their five pounds. I, I say five pounds. I'm talking about a penny, which today would be worth about five pounds, to go see it. Uh, there was something about that atmosphere. You know, we say today that we're in an age of playwrights, age of writers. I've never said that. Well, that's because you are a playwright and, you know. I'm a lumpy. You're a lumpy. (laughs) We have all these little moments in time. Fiction writers in Victorian England. I don't like them either. (laughs) You know, American playwrights in the 40s and 50s or whatever. My point is... What is your point? It was an age of theater leading up to a sort of revolutionary time. And it was sort of the voice of that it was sort of the spirit of that and people was it really really, though sure or is it just that that's what we've been told because history is written by the winners and wasn't there a great playwright revolt around that time where they went to the streets and killed everyone no you've made that up entirely no please someone listening uh pause here we'll pause for you okay go look it up google Great playwrights revolt. Um, they rode through the streets on Tyrannosaurus Rexes, led by Bloody Bill himself, Shakespeare, and uh, they killed a lot of people there with, should, with scythes. <laughs> there should be more Shakespeare-based dinosaur uh, media. Yes, or Shakespeare performed by dinosaurs. That would be that, great, too. I would see that. If anybody wants to do that, if anybody wants to produce a Shakespeare play, cut a lot of it out, please. Uh, in in like the Jurassic period, I would see that. Yeah. Hey, you remember that play we saw where that diner went back in time to Dinosaur Lands? And uh, we saw that play and it took like 17 hours, but it was really just one hour. I don't want to say the name of the play because no. I don't want to insult the playwright, but that was awful, wasn't it? Yeah, that was bad. Theater's horrible. <laughs> but, I, you know, I've seen it work. Uh, there's a great, what do you call it, a graphic novel series called Kill Shakespeare, it was a 12-issue comic book series by IDW, and uh, people should check that out. It's really interesting. It takes a little bit to get into, but if you're a Shakespeare fan, check it out. It's a cool kind of rethinking well, of Shakespeare and graphic novel. You've read that Sandman comic, right? Yeah, the Sandman. Yeah. the Neil Gaiman. Yeah, and he had that uh, one story, uh, I think it's in the fourth collection, that he won like a big literary award for. It was a comic book about Shakespeare and he won like the Hugo Award for Best Fiction or something and it made a lot of people mad. They're like, oh, it's a comic book. He can't win this, but he did. By the way, uh, if Bob Dylan can win the Nobel Prize for literature or poetry, was it poetry, for writing songs, then I think he can win the Hugo yeah, Award. Neil, I don't even know if it was the Hugo Award, but Neil Gaiman can win whatever he wants. Yeah. Neil Gaiman, awesome. if you're listening, call us. Haven't we talked about Neil Gaiman before? Call us again. Right. So, what were we talking about? Dinosaurs and Shakespeare. <laughs> Here's the question. Who would win in a fight? A Tyrannosaurus Rex or Shakespeare with an egg beater? Okay. Did they have egg beaters back then? It doesn't matter. The Tyrannosaurus Rex would destroy Shakespeare, and then we wouldn't have all these great plays. No, he's written the plays already. Okay, well then, sure, let's so test you, it out. You are going on record saying it is okay for a dinosaur to eat Shakespeare as long as he's written all of his plays? I suppose. All right. I mean, so, would, would he die of, like, dysentery or something? I'll, I'll look it up. What would you say are the best 
film adaptations of Shakespeare. And we've already talked about Throne of Blood and Ron and uh, The Bad Sleep Well and The Lion King. Um, so it doesn't have to be like, oh, Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing or Henry V. Right. But even loosely adapted. We already talked about Scotland, Pennsylvania. You, you did talk, you know, The Lion King, obviously, and Throne of Blood are two of the greatest. But in terms of, of straight Shakespeare Do you think people have heard of The Lion King? I don't know. Have you heard of The Lion King, folks? It's great. Mm. You should check it out. Call got, in and tell us if you've heard of The Lion it's King. It's got lions and, like, baboons and stuff. It's and great. kings. And kings. So and Matthew Broderick before is that before or after he killed that guy? I don't know. Matthew Broderick <laughs> was pretty good, but he's no James Earl Jones. No, James Earl Jones is great in everything. He ate a snake. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> okay, back on track. Ooh, how's that off track? What? When did he eat a snake? When he was an army ranger, they had to take a baby snake, raise it, keep it alive. And then kill it and eat it. This is a horrible story. Well, you're the one who brought it up. I did not. I hate this story. Let me go back to Shakespeare film you know adaptations. Speaking of snakes oh and adaptations, you know a great adaptation of Moby Dick is the movie Anaconda? Okay, go on back to your boring Shakespeare. I still find it boring, by the way, this whole Shakespeare thing. Shaking a spear. One of the most influential mm-hmm. ones in my life has been Brana's Henry V. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, yeah. Very uh, dark, gritty version. It's it's really influential tremendous. for all of us. Yes. Then I read I read his even read his autobiography after that came out. I really like Ten Things I Hate About You. I haven't seen that yet. Do, have you not seen it? No. It's great. It's got Heath Ledger and uh, um, Julia uh, Styles. Styles. That's that's the movie that like came when it came out. It was not well regarded. But it has stood the test of time, and a lot of people look back on it now as a classic. So I do need to say it, see it sometime. You do. It's based on Taming of the Shrew, and it's it's a delight. I'll say that. It, much like the Moonlighting episode, Atomic Shakespeare is based on Taming of the Shrew. Have you seen that episode of Moonlighting? I have not. Yeah, it's uh, it was pretty revolutionary when they did it. You know the show Moonlighting with Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd. Oh, I sure do. Yeah. So they will watch that after we're done recording. Should we talk more about Moonlighting? No. Uh, I think we're done Any with other that. shows? Hill Street Blues? You want to talk Did about they those? ever do a Shakespeare episode? Probably. Yeah. It feels like they should have. So uh, what other Shakespeare adaptations? Well, uh, there's a very good Richard III with Ian McKellen. I don't know if you've seen that I saw that, that at the theater. It's very interesting. It's a little bit more... It's modern, but not modern at the same time. He does uh, the uh, Now is the Winter of Our Discontent speech while he's peeing at a urinal, correct? Oh, that sounds familiar. Richard III, by the way, did not kill his nephews. That's all been researched. He's just got a bad rap because of Bill Shakespeare. You know who's in that film is uh, a young Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, he he was intimate with another guy in that. Really? Wasn't he? Probably. I think there was a scene where he was like, in bed with a guy. I think he was the one who was like sent to kill the children. Yeah. Read the book The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. It's great. It's all it's a mystery. It's a historical mystery uh, that all takes place in a hospital bed, but it's all about Richard the Third. It's great. It's good. It really it's, it's considered one of the greatest historical mysteries ever written. You know what else is good? Um, there are two versions of Much Ado About Nothing that are worth seeing. One is the Kenneth Branagh version, which I think is pretty delightful. Well, it's got Keanu Reeves in it. It's got I, Keanu... We saw that. I saw that at the theater as well. I was a huge Kenneth Branagh fan. Yeah. Up until Peter's Friends. Uh, so that was, I think, his fourth film. Uh, and then that just kind of killed something for me. 
But uh, the thing, I have to make another Simpsons reference. Oh, sure. And this is actually my buddy's Mark reference. But the thing that I mainly remember about Much Ado About Nothing is Keanu Reeves. Of course, as Don love, John, the villain. I love. The bastard. And uh, there's a Simpsons episode where they go to Duffland, and there's a beer of like the seven beers, and his name is Surly. And he's just always <laughs> like, man, very Surly. And that's what Mark said Keanu Reeves' performance was like. He's like, mm, I'm just Surly. It is kind of weird. I mean, his performance stands out in an, let's say, an unusual way in the film. But I think overall, it's a good adaptation. And then there's a there's a modern dress adaptation that was shot, I think, in black and white in like two weeks a few years ago by Joss Whedon. By Joss Whedon. I haven't seen that one yet. Which is also extremely good. So check it's out got, that as well. It's got Fred in it. Fred, exactly from yeah. uh, that TV show he did. Angel Winifred Burkle. Uh, what's her name? I should know this because she was my friend Gretchen's students. Gretchen, if you're listening, call us and tell us Fred. Remind us of Fred's name. Was it Amy Acker? That's it. Yeah. Amy Acker. Okay. Gretchen, call me anyway because I really miss you. And the guy is Wesley from A Buffy and Angel. What's his yeah. name? Uh, Mr. Allison Hannigan. <laughs> well, exactly. He's married to Allison Hannigan who played Willow uh, in Buffy. And they have beautiful, uh, very inquisitive children. Yeah, he was Sandy Rivers on How I uh, Bet Your Mother. How I Bet Your Mother. How I Bet Your Mother. <laughs> I bet her 12 pence and yes. boy did I win. So what about like other, though these are all pretty much Shakespeare. No, except for, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You. What are some other adaptations that we can think of? Oh, uh, Internal Affairs is is very good. Cop movie with Richard Gere and Andy Garcia. And uh, there's a lot of Othello in it. Uh, Forbidden Planet is an adaptation of The Tempest. Yes. uh, Except it's a a space science fiction thing with a robot. Right, right. That's cool. And I think a young Leslie Nielsen was in that. Yes, he was the captain. Yeah. So Forbidden Planet, that's a classic. Classic. You should definitely that is check a classic. That out. I will say, even though I don't like Shakespeare, I do like The Tempest and I do like Midsummer Night's Dream. And I've been lucky enough to be in both of them, and I've been lucky enough to see very good professional productions of them. And I have Julie Taymor's Tempest on Blu-ray, and I'm not ashamed of it. I enjoyed it a great deal. I also have The Midsummer Night's Dream with Kevin Klein and Michelle Pfeiffer, which I bought 12 years ago at Walmart and have never watched. Did you know that Don't Fear the Reaper, the Blue Oyster Cult song with Too Much Cowboy? Cowboy, too much cowbell. cowbell is uh, based on Romeo and Juliet. Everything's based on Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, that kind of is a good segue for our uh, our trivia contest. Great. We don't call them quizzes anymore because I don't want you to feel like you fail. All right, so this is a questionnaire called "Is it Shakespeare or is it Motorhead?" Excellent, <laughs> Motorhead. Let me, me R.I.P. We love you. One of the great heavy metal bands. I don't even know if they are technically heavy metal. And someone, if anybody listens to this, will get mad if they're not. Okay, so I'm going to give you some quotes. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me, is it Shakespeare or is it Motorhead? Gotcha. Okay. I was born to rock and roll everything I need. I was born with the hammer down. I was built for speed. That's Motorhead. Yes, from the song Built for Speed. There you go. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's Shakespeare. Yes, from Macbeth. You're good at this. Ripped open they die with their final breath. They hailed the king, the king of kings. Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to go with Motorhead. You're right. It's from uh, one of Triple H's entrance songs in 
in WWE. <laughs> the King of Kings. <laughs> my crown I am, but still my griefs are mine. You may my glories and my state depose, but not my griefs. Still am I king of those. That's Shakespeare. Richard II. Yeah, kings. Richard II is, is a great underlooked Shakespeare. You know, and it's about it's about an overthrow of the government. When uh, Elizabeth the first was in power, there was a rebellion by one of her close confidants at Lord Essex and the Essex Rebellion happened and it failed but in the middle of it it looked like it might succeed and she was well apparently overheard to say I am Richard the second that's 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 it you know I'm born to lose and gambling's for fools but that's the way I like it baby that's Motorhead are you sure yes you want to you want to stick with that I'm gonna stick with Motorhead yes that's from Ace of Spades playing for the high one dancing with the devil going with the flow it's all a game to me motorhead yes that's also from ace of spades mm-hmm. it's a good one that's their most popular song i believe i'd sing a little bit but i, I keep uh, risking it <laughs> with these little <laughs> song snippets come my spade there is no ancient gentleman but gardeners ditchers and grave makers they hold up adam's profession that's shakespeare but it sounds like it could be from ace of spades yeah it's also about spades yeah yeah that's from hamlet oh heaven the vanity of wretched fools that's shakespeare yeah measure for measure Obsequious and arrogant, clandestine and vain. Two thousand years of misery, of torture in my name. That's a tough one. I'm going to say Motorhead. Yes, from Orgasmatron. I don't listen to my old music of vanities unless I have to hear it playing in a mall or something. (laughs) I'm going to stick with Motorhead there. No, that's from, that's vanity. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) you and your trick questions. That's from a Rolling Stone interview. (laughs) Rest in peace, beauty. I got no choice i'm gonna twist your tail love me like a reptile love me like a reptile i gotta sink my fangs in you wow that's that's gotta be a song by motorhead called love me like a reptile yeah you're right yeah you did really well on this quiz. very good and now from the lava pit playhouse the lumpy and sasquatch troubadours present who's on shakespeare Look at this. Look at this wonderful book. Listen to this. To be or not to be. Which one is it? Which one what? Is it to be or is it to not to be? That is the question. I know. That's what I just asked. To be or not to be. That is the question. Right. So which one? It's William Shakespeare from Hamlet. There's no answer. Then why ask? It's Hamlet, the soliloquy, to be or not to be. I just want to know which one. There is no one. It's Hamlet, Shakespeare. You like it? It's okay. Okay? It's considered one of the greatest things ever written. It's a little undecided. But it's William Shakespeare, the greatest writer that ever lived. Plays, sonnets, Shakespeare. Here, the Merchant of Venice. If you prick us, do we not bleed? I don't want you to prick me. If you tickle us, do we not laugh? I don't want you to tickle me. If you poison us, do we not die? I don't want you to poison me. If you wrong us, shall we not revenge? I don't want you to wrong me or revenge me. It's poetry. It sounds like dastardly intentions. Are you going to do something dastardly? No, I wouldn't do anything like that to you. You wouldn't? Of course not. You're my pal. You're a good friend. I just want you to appreciate the greatness of greatness. Here, look at this. The Merry Wives of Windsor. This is the short and the long of it. More of this? Which one is it? Which one what? Is it short or is it long? It's both. That's the poetry. I don't think I like poetry. Sure you do. Othello, tis neither here nor there. 
Just neither here nor there. You've heard the expression before, right? Sure. Well, maybe you've said that before. Sure, here and there. That's Shakespeare. It is? It is. Tis neither here nor there. Here nor there. Short nor long. To be or not to be. Shakespeare needs to make up his mind. Oh, this is pointless. I'm sorry. There's no use trying to teach you anything. I can be a good boy. I can learn. No, nothing will come of nothing. What? It's from King Lear. Nothing will come of nothing. I'm saying your brain is empty, full of nothing. You are ignorant. Ignorant? Yes. Me? Yes, you. Well, I think you're ignorant. Me? Yes, ignorant. And there is no sin but ignorance. What's that? I said there is no sin but ignorance. That's Jew of Malta, Kit Marlowe. We're not talking about him. Today we are joined in the lava pit by best-selling author Bill Kincaid. Bill is a professor of theater at Western Illinois University and founder of Bard in the Barn, an event that has mounted unrehearsed productions of 17 of Shakespeare's plays. He has acted in Shakespeare productions at the Williamstown Theater Festival, the New England Shakespeare Festival, and Chicago's Vitalist Theater, and he directs regularly at Crossroads Repertory Theater in Indiana and New York's Cortland Repertory Theater. He is a three-time recipient of the Classical Acting Coach Award from the National Partners American Theater and was presented with the Illinois Theater Association's Award of Honor in 2005. 14. So, you were raised in a glass tank full of electrified seawater, and that's how you got your superpowers? My memory doesn't actually stretch back that far, so I have to trust what my mother told me, and that is, in fact, what she said. Right, and that's why they wrote a popular comic book about you called Crustacean Kincaid. <laughs> so, I, you know, it was also a number one bestseller on Amazon, I think, but in a very limited category, as is, in fact, my book. Yes, and why don't you tell us what your book is called? The book is called Performing Shakespeare Unrehearsed, A Practical Guide to Acting and Producing Spontaneous Shakespeare. Okay, and who wrote it? <laughs> I did. Okay, good. Uh, I didn't even have a ghostwriter. Wow. Do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> I do not, which is why I wouldn't hire one to write for me. That if is... you did, see, if you, if you don't believe in ghosts, then you assume if you hire a ghostwriter, you're just going to sit around and wait for them to do something and nothing will ever materialize. Right, they're not going to do anything. So performing Shakespeare unrehearsed, that yep. sounds like a very daunting task with all of the words that he likes to use and the pentameters and the iambics yes. and all that stuff stuff so yeah what originally gave you the idea of doing these massive works with no rehearsal well actually i worked with a company in new hampshire the new england shakespeare festival that did a lot of work this way and i was really fascinated by it and felt that it had great potential for the education of my students just because the main thing about it is it causes you to look very specifically and very closely at the language. And I thought, well, this is going to be great for my students. And I brought it back and did some work with them on it, and it succeeded more than I thought it would. They really loved it. They got very excited. Then I had an opportunity to write a grant for some money to do productions this way and got the grant. And then we just sort of worked from there. Uh, lots of people got involved. The alumni came back year after year to perform this way and so forth. So I can't take credit for the idea because there were other people doing it first but i can say i think i've done more of shakespeare's plays produced in this fashion than probably anyone else and i've learned a lot about doing it that way in the process which is why i thought the book should really be written i also get a lot of questions when i teach workshops or when people see performances 
they want to know about the technique. And I thought, well, the book's a great way to be able to disseminate that more widely. That's a good idea. So basically somebody else came up with the original idea, but it sounds like you perfected it. You know, that's really what they say about Shakespeare, too. He took all his plots from somebody else, but then it was his unique approach to them and the way he expressed them that made him Shakespeare. And so I guess I'll say the same thing about myself. I'm the one who found a way to express it all in words in this book. So why did you write this book instead of one about a snowman that has to solve a murder before the sun comes out and he melts? That's such a good idea that I think it should be my next book. I'll just steal that from you, like a Shakespearean plot stolen from other people, and I'll dramatize it. Maybe that should be your next book. You've adapted some wonderful plays and musicals, right? Yeah, I really liked Rudyard Kipling's stories when I was a child. I remember my mother reading them to me. And so some years ago now, I did adapt a few of those into musicals for children. Actually, going through this publication process has made me think that I really ought to pull those out and see if I can interest a publisher in those also, because because why not, right? Yeah, they would have a market. I've seen at least a couple of them, and they are wonderful, and the music is amazing. So they are things that should not be one and done. They should be published so that the world can appreciate them. Well, yes, they should. Maybe that should be my next thing. I'm sorry, I'm going to put your snowman story on hold. (laughs) All right. How many Shakespeare plays have you directed, do you think, all in all, not just unrehearsed? If you put the unrehearsed together with the others, I think it would be probably in the low 20s. I haven't actually directed a whole lot of rehearsed Shakespeare because once I started doing it unrehearsed, it's hard to go back. I can do it, but it just requires such an adjustment for me. And I find that a lot of people, when they want you to direct a Shakespeare play, what they really want you to do is come up with some kind of outlandish setting for it. Yes. And that's not my strength when it comes to Shakespeare. I I think some directors do that very well. But for me, it feels so arbitrary. I may as well just put a bunch of weird locations on a board and throw a dart. If somebody's going to do that kind of a production, it would overjoy me to be the text coach for it because I love working with actors on the text. Mm -hmm. That's much more exciting to me than trying to figure out what kind of spin we can put on a Shakespeare play. Right. So uh, what's your favorite Shakespeare play? Do you have one? Yeah, probably King Lear. Mm -hmm. Have you directed that yet? I have. Yeah. And it's just so enormously tragic. And I think I'm close to my family and the family dynamic in it that manifests in a lot of different ways. The people outside the family who love people in the family more than the people in the family love one another, the betrayals within the family, the jealousies, the pettiness, and yet also the forgiveness and the pure love in it. All of those things are very interesting to me. And the beauty of the language and the intensity of it, I think, is just unparalleled. Okay, that's a good choice. I know there have been a lot of adaptations, thinking of A Thousand Acres, the book. Have you seen that TNT Western with Patrick Stewart called The Last King of Texas, which is an adaptation of King of Yes. No. Wow. I recall it as being pretty good, but some of the plot gets lost along the way, obviously. Yeah. So. You know what I did just see, speaking of Western settings, I just saw a really interesting new musical in New York City a few months ago called Desperate Measures, which is a musical adaptation of Shakespeare's Measure for Measure set in the Old West with country music. Yeah. And it was pretty great. That sounds amazing. It. So to sum up, what is your one sentence elevator pitch for your book? Shakespeare gave us absolutely everything we need in the language. Actors don't even need to rehearse in order to perform it. And I can prove that to you. Great. And what's your one-sentence elevator pitch for using an elevator? (laughs) Going up and down stairs can be tiring, especially if you have to do it several times a day. So while we're in this box that nobody has yet thought of how to move, let me suggest that we might learn to elevate it. Excellent. And I can prove it. (laughs) Wonderful way to tie up your answer. (laughs) 
Is there anything else you wanted to tell our tens of listeners about your book? It is published uh, by Focal Press, so we want yes, to plug them. Through, yep, Focal Press through Routledge. I have been very careful in the book not to elevate the language too much and the content too much because I want, for example, my mother and father who have seen Shakespeare, of course, but are not theater people, I want them to be able to pick up this book, read it, and think, oh, wow, that's really cool. I didn't realize you could do that. I didn't realize that this could be so accessible. And I think I, I, think I succeeded a lot with that in this book. I think it's really the kind of book that anybody who has an interest in Shakespeare but doesn't know a lot about it could still pick up and read, even if they're not an actor. That's a good goal. It's my dream. Great. As you know, we always wrap up our episodes with a question for our guest. Are you ready for your Lumpy and Sasquatch question? I am as ready as I think I'm capable of being. Lumpy and Sasquatch travel back in time to see Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale at the original Globe Theater in 1611. Upon arriving, they meet seasoned theatrical impresarios Richard Burbage and William Shakespeare. They mistake Lumpy and Sasquatch for job hunters, and they put the pair to work. So, who is hired to sell oysters to the groundlings, and who is enlisted to portray the menacing bear of stage direction infamy? Oh, well, much as I would enjoy seeing Lumpy as the bear, I feel that Sasquatch is a better match for that particular role. Right, so Lumpy's going to... So gonna I think s- Lumpy's going to have to sell the oysters, yeah. Well, and Lumpy has a lot of experience with oysters. He bites their shells open with his massive teeth. Once again, we'll say that the book is called Performing Shakespeare Unrehearsed, A Practical Guide to Acting and Producing Spontaneous Shakespeare. It's by Bill Kincaid. That's right, the Bill Kincaid. And it's available (laughs) at Amazon and respectable bookstores everywhere. Well, thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, folks. We, uh, We love talking to you as always. Remember, email us your thoughts, feelings, and deepest desires. And don't support live theater, and certainly don't go to Shakespeare plays. Strike that, reverse it. Also... So wait, don't go to Shakespeare plays, and don't support live theater. No, You're right. don't support about... bear baiting, go to live theater. Support live theater. Unless Thank it's you. a play about bear baiting. Oh my god. Nice Thank seeing you. you, hearing from you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Talk to you next time. Bye, Neil Gaiman. The Lumpy and Sasquatch theme was written by Bob Garrix. Our introduction was recorded by Kimberly Logan. Lumpy and Sasquatch's artwork was designed by Jake Friend. Sasquatch and Lumpy, the Lumpy and Sasquatch show.